Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. <laughs> Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray, of iNews and the iNewspaper. Um, we've got George Belshaw and Calvin Betton in the room with me, as always. Well, Calvin's not technically here, but he is imminently arriving into the call, we are assured. Uh, your good, honest Yorkshire broadband not actually working on this occasion. Uh, I won't waffle on any longer because we have absolutely loads to get through. Uh, Djokovic has left Australia. We're recording this just a few hours before the Australian Open starts in that sort of fraught window. Personally, I feel like a Grand Slam's just coming to an end because I'm absolutely exhausted and I've barely slept. Um, we'll talk about what this means for the men's draw. Who is the new favourite? The bookies have it as Daniil Medvedev, but can anyone else really challenge for the title? What does it mean for Rafael Nadal? Is he all of a sudden a pretty serious contender for the title? Uh, we'll look back at Aslan Karatsev's win over Andy Murray in the final of the Sydney Tennis Classic. Uh, we'll also have a little mention for Tanasi Kokinakis, um, titles for Madison Keys and Paola Badosa. We'll look at our fantasy tennis teams. I'm still tinkering with mine, so maybe George can help me out with some tips on that. And we'll also, of course, look at how our beloved Brits are going to get on. Not a great set of draws and no one in particularly good form, apart from Dan Evans, which wasn't something I thought I'd be saying. But there is, of course, only one place to start, and it's Novak Djokovic. Uh, he took his visa cancellation to appeal for the second time overnight in Australia. Or, Well, I can't even work out what day it is in Australia. As usual, I've lost track of that. Needless to say, I woke up at 6 o'clock this morning to watch a judge read out a very short uh, judgment. Uh, he, wore, he confirmed that Novak Djokovic's application to overturn the Immigration Minister Alex Hawke's um, well, I suppose it was a ruling, technically. Uh, I don't really understand the executive powers given to the immigration minister, but he had decided Novak Djokovic's visa was cancelled. The court agreed with him. Djokovic's lawyers had no further appeals to make, and he got himself on a flight to Dubai, which was swiftly tracked by about 5,000 people on flight radar, although what they were getting out of that, I have no idea. 
There was much anger. There was much rejoicing. I don't think many issues in tennis have divided people more down the middle, George. I know social media is a fraught place and everyone's got very strong opinions, but my impression of Australia is that it, and and the rest of the world to a certain extent, is that it really is down the middle. This feels 50-50. You're either delighted or you're gutted. You'll be shocked to hear I'm slap bang in the middle, James. As <laughs> um, I mean, to try and vaguely cover all angles, I understand the delight from people in Melbourne. Um, you know, it's the most locked down city and it there was always a bit of a sense that it was a kind of very rich man kind of bending the rules, um, you know, and that's not necessarily to kind of apportion blame to Djokovic on that. But, you know, the exemptions were put in there for him to kind of go through. He technically did follow the rules that presented with him. Um, you know, there's all sorts of debates about whether, you know, the, what his conduct with COVID, etc. And, you know, some have raised some concerns over the test. But in terms of him needing to fit the medical exemption that was offered to him by Tennis Australia and um, the Victoria government, he, he, he followed those rules. Um, but that said... You know, they've been going through a long period where people haven't been able to get home to their families, um, you know, and they're all their freedoms have been curtailed by not being vaccinated. You, know, you can't go across state lines in Australia if you're not double vaccinated. So it, there was always going to be a sense of anger. Um, and then you've got those who, you know, will vociferously support Djokovic, but also those who are very worried about human freedom, I suppose, to a degree where they're concerned that. You know, was he ever actually a really big health risk? You know, on paper, if he did recently have COVID, then probably not realistically. I mean... It's not it about a... that, is it? And and as was kind of discussed in the court today, it's not about whether he was a genuine health risk. I think we all agree that no letting Novak Djokovic into the country was not a genuine risk that he would give someone COVID. The risk is that it excites anti-vax sentiment, that it shows you can be unvaccinated. I mean, I know that people have, have A, made Djokovic, potentially through no fault of his own, although partially I would suggest through fault of his own, a poster boy for the anti-vax libertarian, my body, my choice movement. And by allowing him to circumvent the rules, you're giving that movement more oxygen. I mean, we know people who have seen this as a victory, who would have seen this as a victory for their quote-unquote movement. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I hasten to add, this is far from my own position. I'm merely just setting out everyone else's positions here and why other people are annoyed. Um, I mean, I, 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 can see, I can see the argument that... I don't know. I mean, at the end what of the are, day... What, what, what argument are you struggling with here? Well... I do kind of, I do look I I can understand why people would be annoyed that from the perspective of him following the rules whether you agreed with the exemptions or not in the first place of him not being much of a public health risk and I can also see that actually there's very it's difficult to prove in its exactness uh, that Djokovic would be further promoting anti-vaxxers I think at this stage in the pandemic you're anti-vax because you're already anti-vax you know you don't you'll take whatever evidence supports you so I, I can kind of see that kind of point maybe not being as strong as it was offered forward. That said, the whole, all of this boils down to 
if the bloke was vaccinated, none of this happens. And I, I just find it impossible to move away from that position. So I'm not happy he's not there from a tennis perspective because I'd rather Djokovic play these tournaments because he's one of the best players out there. And, you know, people will start trying to asterisk this rightly or wrongly. But I also don't support him not being vaccinated and going there, even if I can potentially yeah. see why people are obsessed about it. But just because I know we have a bit of anecdotal evidence here, I mean, Calvin, you were saying the other day when, when Djokovic won his first appeal that, you know, you did know people who, who saw it as some sort of great victory for their for their movement. Absolutely, yeah. They've And people who had no interest in tennis, had no interest in Novak Djokovic before that, suddenly saw it as it seemed to be a legal battle that the people who'd given him the legal battle were the people that they thought he'd beaten. So I didn't really understand it. It was like they seemed to think he'd beaten the Australian government, despite the Australian government saying that he could stay for the time being. But yeah, they 100%, the couple of anti-vaxxers who I know definitely both thought that it was a huge achievement that Djokovic had done and that he'd proven something, but they couldn't really tell me what they thought he'd proven or what he'd won other than he'd been allowed in there. And and even then, it was like, let, let's have it straight, that that victory was no victory for anti-vaxxers. His, his only argument was that he'd had COVID recently, so why he should be allowed in the country. It was nothing to do with anti-vax sentiment or anything, was it? He's mm. He's been quite, although we all know where he stands in it, he's been quite safe to never say that he's against vaccines. Yes, he, he said really that he wouldn't things. like to be forced to take one, um, and everything that he stands for in terms of holistic health is is non-vaccinated you know you're absolutely right calvin he's been quite clever because he knows that by saying i don't think people should get vaccinated it's a problematic thing to say it's going to get him in trouble um i know that his wife got in some hot water for sort of liking and promoting various anti-vaccination and conspiracy theories um and and that caused problems for them so yes you're right but anyone who has watched his self-mastery series uh, from what feels like about 18 months ago, I suppose it is now, um, with Chervin Jafaria, who is one of the world's finest snake oil salesmen, a self-styled health expert, um, from whom for just £40 a month, you can buy longevity mushrooms to promote balance, immunity and beauty. Um, but you can also subscribe and get 3% off if you buy a year up front. Anyone who's seen that series knows that while anti-vaccination is not a stated aim of these people, it's very much within the milieu. I, I think the weird thing is as well that, I, I mean, I think they're nuts anyway, but if, if you were an anti-vaxxer, and I, I, I would want a little bit more from my, um, my spokesman, my hero, and that sort of thing, because I, he could have really made a stand, couldn't he? He could, have, <clears throat> he could have come out there and gone like, this is a disgrace. I'm not going over there if they're wanting us to be vaccinated. We should all boycott it. And it wasn't any of that at all. He just tried to find a back door in there mm, and, yeah. and not help any other anti-vaxxers out. I don't know where his solidarity was to the, to the community, if you will. Um, uh, there will be more answers to questions, I'm sure. The court hasn't yet published its reasons for the decisions that it made. Um, but I wanted to pick up on a couple of things that have answered questions we asked ourselves earlier in the week. Um, Sergei Stokowski uh, came out on Twitter, uh, interestingly, and said that Novak's plan 
we had always questioned what was his plan. He can't have planned to get COVID. He he says that Novak's plan was not to go. That if if he couldn't get an exemption, which he wouldn't have got, um, uh, he wouldn't have got vaccinated, and he would just not go. And I suppose what that calls into question now, George, and we've kind of discussed it a bit, and I wrote a piece for the paper about this over the weekend. Um, he's not going to get vaccinated just so he can get into Grand Slams, is he? And France are very unhappy with unvaccinated people. Getting over the US border, wall or no wall, it's more a jab or no jab situation. And then there's the case of trying to get back into Australia next year. This sounds like this problem isn't going away if we are to take Sergei Stokowski at his face value. I, th- I think it was Pospisil, actually, James. Just are you sure? I think so. I mean, it's not really relevant which one it was, is it? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I, I can't see this getting any easier for him. Like, I I think, generally speaking, most countries seem to be moving towards some form of two-vac system, whether that's in, you know, as stringently applied as Australia or not. Um, We'll have to wait and see, but it it does seem like it's going to be very, very difficult. And, you know, you've got to consider... We've spoken a bit about kind of Wimbledon if it if he was to come in and kind of have that 10-day isolation period. Isolation periods are unworkable in tennis. I mean, it's just an absolute nightmare because there's tournaments week in, week out. So, you know, it, it, there is no easy solution for Djokovic if he doesn't want to get vaccinated. I mean, we, we sort of said, will he be forced into retirement almost? Um, I, I still wouldn't be that surprised if he goes away from this and is vaccinated before the French Open. Because at the end of the day, I still think when he's when push comes to shove and he's choosing between going completely against medicine or ending his career as the greatest of all time, I think the latter will prevail. Um, and I think he knows there'll be a target on his back based on this situation in terms of every country, every tournament that comes up now, they're going to know Oh, is Djokovic coming? Will he find a way around the rules? What's going on? This story doesn't go away now. Um, so I, I suspect he actually will go and get vaccinated, but that is complete speculation. I hasten to add. Oh, because um, we all thought yeah. you had a big inside source in Novak Djokovic. He's been jabbed on his flight home, James. That was all. <laughs> that was all. Um, yeah, it, it was possible, James, that you talked about. Stakowski was the guy who this morning was claiming that laws shouldn't apply to people who have different beliefs, um, uh, yes. um, which was an interesting take. Um, but interestingly, I saw somebody, I forget one of the journalists, um, comment earlier on that they saw him, Djokovic, being in Australia next year and coming for some sort of redemption because the the pandemic will end and it will save himself with some sort of redemption. But I can't imagine that the way that Australia's moved on this, even if things get a whole lot better, as I expect they will, I imagine they'll still have a the same ruling next year that you've got to be vaccinated to be able to play. I, I don't see them, I don't see Australia moving out of that quick enough in the next year to, to drop that rule in, in 12 months. And there's also the point, and I'm not clear whether this is a, a, an option that needs to be enforced or whether it's mandatory, but if you are rejected or have a visa cancelled in Australia, it, it, result, it can result in a three-year ban from applying for another one. Now, as I say, I've not been clear on whether this is something that can be enforced or will be enforced, you know, whether it's mandatory or not. George, you may, you may know better. I, I thought it was automatically enforced, but that 
there are exemptions, which is always hilarious. <laughs> oh, good. Another um, exemption. And it's possible, from my reading of it, that Djokovic may qualify or could be argued to qualify in mm. terms of bringing something. I, I think one of them is sort of bringing specific kind of, you can make enough economic interest arguments about right, it. Yeah. So it's Skills that no one else can provide. Yeah. So it's arguable. I mean, we'll have to wait and see because obviously this has been such a massive case that I'm sure there'll be no rush to um, pamper Djokovic next year. But but there may be ways around that, particularly if he came back and was vaccinated. Um, he'd, he'd be fine, probably. But I, I don't know. I mean, can you imagine if in 12 months we're here again? He still hasn't <laughs> been vaccinated. On, <laughs> he claims he got COVID on um, the 1st of December or something like that. Well, I mean, the, the interesting question going forward is, I mean, I think from a ten very Tennessee standpoint is, you know, our heads going to roll at Tennis Australia over this because this exemption, if we're looking at fingers to point in terms of blame, Craig Tiley's got to take a massive chunk of blame on this as well. You know, really trying to, we know he's been massively pushing for stars to come in who aren't vaccinated, not reading the room, really. I don't think he quite understood um, how angry people were going to be kind of reacting to this sort of thing. Um, so I think there'll be a big question over him. And just a general question of going forwards, will they ever bother trying to have exemptions again? Should it just be a flat out, you're vaccinated or not, beyond a you know, serious medical reason why you can't take the vaccine? Um, so we'll have to wait and see. But I, I'm with you, James. I can't exactly, or Calvin, I can't exactly see them lowering their threshold of letting people in um given the current stance i think as well because australia seemed to i don't know if it's official but they seem to be going for some sort of zero covid or near to that and i don't see any way that it can move on in, in that quick in a year's time but the thing I, was, I wanted to say though is the strangest position i think on all of this is sort of Djokovic's supporters who seem to think he's that their, their whole argument seems to be that he's been singled out in this and and used as a scapegoat or something like that but the rules were put in place as a whole they were nothing to do with Novak Djokovic at the start so they've got a problem with him being singled out when it hasn't gone his way but they wanted him to be singled out for special treatment so he could get in and and that's what I, I can't quite get this idea that he's he's been used as some sort of political pawn mm. but this wasn't a rule that was it, when when this rule came in. There were a lot of players who weren't vaccinated. Yeah. I don't know the exact numbers, but I know a few in the top one hundred who weren't vaccinated who've been vaccinated since. So you can't have it one way and say you don't want him singled out now, being that he's the only player who turned up there with no vaccine. But you did want him singling out for all the rules to be broken so he could play the tournament. That's there's no logic in that. I mean, yeah, you're, you're right there, Calvin, because I remember there were some emails that were leaked of Craig Tiley kind of bartering with the Australian government, um, the Victorian government, rather, uh, about players coming in and saying, you know, we'd lose our star attraction. And people had automatically read that as just talking about Djokovic. But my understanding of that situation was when those emails were sent, it was because of a massive chunk of very top players who weren't vaccinated. So it was yeah. actually a much bigger, wider problem. Um, and these emails were kind of leaked a bit further down the line, almost to suggest Tylee was personally just trying to push Djokovic through alone, um, which wasn't the case. But 
you know, we know people like Sissipas changed their minds quite late in last season. Guys like Rublev, I think, came out and said they weren't vaccinated as well. Team was always waiting for the one shot. Um, so it, it certainly wasn't just a Djokovic situation. But at the end of the day, most of these players were like, well, at the end, I want to make money. I want to carry on my career. Hmm. Um, Djokovic normally puts that first above everything. Thought he found a sneaky way around it. Didn't. Uh, now... Uh, now I think we've got the real question: Does he? Now he's seen, you know, gone through the looking glass, realised there was no easy solution. Will he now break and kind of have this vaccine or not? I'd just say quickly on the vaccine, just sort of slightly moving off that when we had a discussion earlier in the year about why some players had not had it during the season and that kind of thing, and even aside from the, there was this chat, a small chance that you can be ill for a few weeks and or for a few days, sorry, and that kind of thing, some sort of side effect. I had the booster on Thursday and it was way worse for me in terms of the, the aching arm than it was on either of the other ones. And I had it Thursday. We're now on Sunday. So four days on I, Thursday morning. We're now Sunday afternoon. So four days on, I, I reckon if I was playing tennis, I still couldn't hit. Um, I still couldn't hit forearms with it. My arm is, I've, I've <laughs> never been ill or anything, but my arm is still aching pretty bad. And Why did you have it in your right arm? Because, uh, I, I mean, sorry, if I was uh, backhand, not right, right okay. not uh, sorry, yeah, two-handers. Um, so um, I think, it, you know, that's just a little, you know, nothing scientific or anything, but I think a few players, like, during the season, it was little things like that they, that they were opposed to. Um, mm. If Basically, even if it writes off four days of practice, for example. that you, I, you And I think, I think I can sympathise with that. Like, fine, you don't want to, like put anything in jeopardy even for a day or two you know during the season i, I think that's fine yeah um, yeah I, and then to be like right i've got off season now and i'll get it done before australia and bish bash bosh you know i i can just about kind of stomach that i and i, and I think some players have had to do that as you said um and that's fine but there's a difference between that and pierre Hugues Herbert or tennis sandgren who are incidentally the other two unvaccinated top 100 male players who are quite frankly anti-vaccination that I don't and I don't think that's controversial to say that and I I don't respect them for it um at this stage I'm afraid I, I wrote something in the article I wrote for the paper at the weekend the line I used was vaccination is the only way out of this pandemic and a lot of people pulled me up on it and they said no it's not and I went well this isn't my opinion. Like I didn't just make that phrase up out of nowhere. It's actually on the WHO website, the World Health Organization. It's also the opinion of the majority of Western political and public health leaders, and frankly, the rest of the world included. It's not me who thinks vaccination is the way out of this pandemic. It's the majority of the world. So in some ways, it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. Novak Djokovic is not an immunologist. Someone had a go at me saying, maybe maybe sports journalists shouldn't write about immunology. I said, well, I haven't. I'm not an immunologist. I wouldn't pretend to be, but this is the situation. Novak Djokovic is not an immunologist. I'm sure he would like to tell you that he is, just as Chervin Jafaria would like to tell you that he's a scientist and immunologist. Someone who thinks that Parkinson's disease is caused by Diet Coke. But it's not. not. Neither of those things are true. Novak Djokovic is not an immunologist, and... Chervin Jafaria has not proven that Parkinson's disease is caused by Diet Coke. Sorry, I had a bit of a bee in my bonnet. 
Right. I can tell you really don't like Chervin, do you? Oh Why my you goodness. Have you ever watched any of his videos? <laughs> Sadly. Only the water, famous water one is the only one I've seen. Yeah, yeah. And and to be fair, Novak's talking for most of that. No, but when you actually I went on his website to sort of look at some of the stuff and you know, there's the sort of it's quite clever because it's you've got like vitamin D tablets or zinc tablets, you know, which do work and are genuine kind of, you know, you can be prescribed them. But then you've got, you know, stuff like, yeah, shiitake mushrooms churned into an expensive jar that you have to eat once a day because or drizzle them on your yogurt. Uh, it's just I mean, mushrooms on yogurt that I mean, forget all the pseudoscience. Surely that's enough to put anyone off it. Let's move on because I think everyone's heard quite enough of Novak Djokovic. I, I know people can't get enough of it, quite frankly, but um, we can't talk about it forever. It means that the new number one seed for the Australian Open is Salvatore Caruso. Uh, he was inserted into the draw basically because the Australian Open got their order of play out about three hours before the judgment. Um, it meant that they didn't have to rejig and move Rublev up, move Monfils up and make Bublik the 33rd seed. They just dropped the lucky loser in. And briefly, Salvatore Caruso was listed as the number one seed. But he now will play Mayomir Kesmanovic, who, as a fellow Serb, someone who's obviously been inspired by Novak Djokovic a lot in his career, has said that he will dedicate his win, if he gets it, to uh, Novak Djokovic, which makes me feel slightly sick. Um, it, it throws everything open. Does anyone, do either of you now think that Daniil Medvedev will not win the Australian Open? Um, I don't think it's... Na- I'd make him favourite, but I don't think it's nailed on. He he always has these kind of... these mad moments in tournaments, doesn't he, where where anything can happen. Um, and I think that it's feasible that... I, I struggle to see it being anyone other than him or Zverev or Nadal. On what grounds? Um, well, no one else has won one who's <laughs> in there. I yeah. don't think... Um, Zverev hasn't won one, but he's sorry. Murray, of course, yeah. He's, Stan, Stan's not in it, is he? Chilich, he's won a slam. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm going to say Chilich ain't winning it. Um, <laughs> he's, <laughs> um, he's got a qualifier in round one and two. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I, I don't. I think you know those two are. Nadal's got the pedigree. Medvedev and Zverev, to be fair, over the last year are the, by far the two best players, other than Djokovic. So. Um, and since he passed, I don't think entirely fit or doesn't have the confidence in his body. If, if he was, I think if he'd, if he'd have had a start of the season where he wasn't um, still struggling with his uh, elbow, I'd make him maybe after Medvedev the next favourite. But I think it's going to be one of those three, um, to be honest. I, we were joking in, in bef- before the group is that what tends to happen in these tournaments is that the seeds can sometimes start falling. Everyone goes to pot and that is... Manner from heaven for Rafa Nadal. He, he'll just Nadal's not going to lose. The tournament opens up. Nadal won't lose. I guarantee that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what Calvin said there. The, the other name I would probably throw into the mix is actually Berrettini. I think the only guy who's beaten him in the last three slams has been Djokovic. Um, so he's been playing a really good level um, for a long time, and he's the guy who benefits most from Novak going out. The big caveat is. And this is another guy who it, it may be a stretch to see him winning it, but someone who could be a semi-finalist if he can come through round three. Berrettini Alcaraz round three, I think, is massive for someone to kind of be a semi-finalist here. Um, 
Ari Nadal, I I think he might lose to Karatsev last 16. I think that's going to be a tough match for him if he plays to the level he's at. I don't see him beating Zverev on a hard court now. He's lost the last few to Zverev pretty comfortably uh, in straight sets. And I think he'll, he'll have his number. Medvedev, I'm a little bit worried. So I, I think, yeah, well, I mean, I think we've both had minor concerns about Medvedev's draw on the grounds that his projected round two and round three opponent, he has 0-2 records against. But, I mean, the thing is, and Calvin, you've said this before, that Daniil Medvedev kind of went from being a, a fringe player on the tour to being a hard-court monster in the space of about six months. You know, he, he there, there was an enormous gradient of improvement. And so there's this kind of, you know, B, C and A, D set of results for him that I think find it difficult to trust head-to-heads. I don't know if you still agree. Yeah, definitely. And one of those head-to-heads against Kyrgios. And Medvedev, if we're saying that, if we're saying that Medvedev's a, what, I'm going to say a 200% better player than he was when he lost to Kyrgios, Kyrgios is nowhere near as good as he was when he lost to him. Kyrgios has, Kyrgios has semi-retired from tennis since he beat him. So The, the caveats that were me, and they are small caveats, I do generally agree that I think Medvedev beats Kyrgios nine times out of ten. Kyrgios was one of two people to beat him in probably Medvedev's best stretch of form, actually, uh, that hard-court summit where he was literally dragging himself on one leg to the US Open final. I mean, I think he's improved as a player since then, but he was, in terms of that confidence, pretty unstoppable there. So Kyrgios did beat him then. But I think at home, Kyrgios just seems to find another level in round one and two in Australia. It'll be an awkward match for Medvedev. It'll be a lot of fun. I'd still back Medvedev. But I think Humbert's Humbert's a big concern for Medvedev. He's the sort of player who can really trouble him. And that most recent win we spoke about, that came at the ATP Cup. That's probably the worst possible round three draw I could see from Medvedev. But I don't see him losing to another player in that bracket of seeds based on styles. But I think Humbert's weird that he could kind of... He's got good enough hands and enough weapons to kind of cause Medvedev big problems. And he's a good volleyer who can mix it up and come in if necessary. So I think that'll be tricky if, if that does happen. But Umber might as well, might well lose round one. I wouldn't necessarily trust him to get to round three. Um, looking at the other part of the bottom half of the draw, which is Stefano Tsitsipas and Kasper Rude's quarter... Um, we obviously we are very much in the dark when it comes to Tsitsipas's fitness and his, as you say Calvin quite rightly his confidence in his own fitness and when I say fitness I mean just his elbow basically uh, but he seems to have at least to me a relatively decent draw Mikhail Ema in the first round probably Ramos Vinolas um, Grigor Dimitrov as far as seeds Tsitsipas could get in the third round that doesn't feel like an awful one for him and then I think it might be Fritz or Bautista Agut there's no one who's going to blow their way through in there, is there? As I say, in that general section of Sisbath Rude, I mean, that, that really would be the one that someone could take advantage, aside from that Berrettini slot at the top. I mean, I think Sinner falls in there. Andy Murray falls in there. That'll be another interesting potential round three if that does happen. I'm not saying Murray can go and win it, but he'll fancy his chances big time. Bashadaspili round one, Sinner round three. Casper Rude round four. That that's about as good as Murray could hope for as a draw. And as soon as he gets in a second week, <clears throat> if he's physically okay, on that side where Sissipas isn't right, he pushed him close at the US Open. He's had an elbow surgery since then. Murray will be bang up for this. Like 
there's a genuine, genuine possibility with this draw, he could go all the way. He could equally lose round one. I hasten to add, but it's uh, it's a chance for him. I think Murray, he'll like that draw. Um, I think you should always put a little bit on players that do well in Australia. It's one of those places where certain players like it, certain players don't. And Dimitrov likes playing in Australia. There's good results in Australia and. I wouldn't say it's definite. I don't think it is a great draw that if uh, City Pass gets him in, you say round three, James? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's a great uh, section for City Pass that against um, Dimitrov. Hmm. Interesting to see how it unfolds. In part two, we'll look at the top half of the draw. We'll talk about the WTA tour, where, of course, any of the top 50 can win. And we'll also take a look at some of the title winners from the week before. Uh, I do just want to, um, I think we all kind of in one voice uh, want to send a message of support to Chrissy Everett, um, who this week uh, announced that she has been diagnosed with cancer. Um, everyone will know that she's obviously a huge name in the tennis scene and we wish her the very best. I don't think there's a huge amount to say beyond that, uh, other than we, we hope they, she says that they, they seem to have caught it early and she's got a, a treatment plan of chemotherapy, I believe, in place. So um, fingers crossed for Chris Everett. Um, I'm sure we'll see her back on the scene very soon indeed um, and something we can all look forward to. Um, I said before the break that we would talk about the top half of the men's draw next. That, of course, includes Novak Djokovic. Oh, I haven't updated these notes. No, he's not in it, apparently. I, I missed that. Um, it, it's the the draw. I mean, it's the, it's the open half of the draw now, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I mean, maybe it's like the women's game. Anyone could win it, couldn't they? George, who, who does this? Who does Djokovic's withdrawal favour the most? Um, one of Berrettini, Alcaraz, or Monfils or Garin. Probably that four. I think they're the guys. I know that's a bit kind of wishy-washy. Oh, but... I mean, if we're going to say that is 25% of the seeds in the top half. <laughs> well, I think realistically, Berrettini and Alcaraz are the two I see reaching the semi-finals from that side. Um, Both of them? One of them. They play each other <laughs> in round. Say, it'd be very impressive for them both to reach the semi-finals given they're playing each other in the third round. But one of Monfils and Garin will reach, reach the course finals, which they categorically would not have done if Djokovic was there. So... That's how they benefit. They go further than they should have gone um, beforehand. Mm. Calvin, do you? I mean, Gail Monfils is one of the seeds that George didn't name, incredibly, um, despite having just rattled off pretty much everyone. It's do, a... <laughs> he, he is in that top eighth, I think. So he avoids a potential clash with Djokovic in the fourth round. It kind of opens up a bit. Christian Garin is his, his third round projection. I mean, do you buy the the new Gail Monfils, new and improved? The problem with Monfils is, I mean, he's unpredictable anyway, but I was told by a strength and conditioning coach and a physio a few years ago now that the problem that Monfils has in majors is that he's, because he's such a freak of an athlete, in that he has a hugely disproportionate amount of fast-twitch muscles in his body, mm. that there's always a counter to that if you've got that many fast-twitch muscles that you have less short-twitch, um, slow-twitch muscles. So as brilliant as he can be in one match, he struggles over the length of a tournament to maintain it because his the slow-twitch muscles, for anyone who doesn't know, is, is kind of endurance... Uh, the ability to last long. So in one way, he's such a freak athlete that he, this is why he's so fast and he moves so well. 
and he's so explosive that you have you can't have the same amount of both. It's the reason why you don't have marathon runners who, who can run 100 metres in 9.8 seconds. Um, so that is what I think Monfils' problem will be, is that he's always struggled in his entire career, really. It's one of the reasons why we haven't seen him in the latter stages of slams, that he struggles to last the distance, if you will. Hmm. Uh, and George, you didn't seem particularly enamoured with his matchup against Christian Garin, which I, I thought... You know, I think Monfils is the number 17 seed. Garin is pretty much the best bloke he can draw in the third round. I mean, Garin, I don't know how many matches in slams recently you've watched of Garin, but the third round typically just seems to become all-out warfare. And it's just going to... If that match happens, it will be five sets in at least four hours. (laughs) For reasons Calvin is saying, I'm not sure that necessarily favours Monfils over Garin. Um, I think both of them will kind of struggle to get over the line if that match does happen. Um, so, yeah, I, I see that one being pretty close. I'd probably favour Monfils marginally, but I don't I think Garin, Garin's equipped himself pretty well at most slams last year, got about as far as he, he should have done. Um, so I'd, I'd give him a good chance against Monfils. The, the crazy thing about Monfils, which I was just, it still shocks me every time I see it, but like I looked at it last week at something about him. Monfils is 35 years old. And wow. it's like, this is somebody who's like, forever is just going to be 23 years old forever isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you look at him now and it's like he still seems to be having as much fun as he always has he'll be in someone play. who does very well on the exhibition circuit when he finally starts playing competitively and he will win yeah, a lot I, of matches he's one of those there's certain people who you think were just born at sort of 62 years old hmm. and there's certain people who are just forever 23 and i think monfils is one of those um yeah bizarre yeah. Can I just, um, George, you said Christian Garin has acquitted himself quite well at the slams. <laughs> I just want to draw your attention to his hard court record, right? Do you, can you guess how many hard court matches he won at tour level last year? Probably not that many. I mean, he does win a lot on clay, to be fair. <laughs> George, <laughs> we've talked about clay court specialists before, and somehow Christian Garin hasn't really come up. Christian Garin is the ultimate clay court specialist. He won three matches on hard courts last year, and they were against Alex Molkan, Ernesto Escobedo, and Norbert Gombos, none of whom are in the top 100 in the world. This man is in the top, this man is a top 20 player on the basis of basically just scooping up clay court points all over the world. Well, to, to counter, I would say, you know, last year, fourth round French. As expected, you know, being his clay court. Yeah, that's the, that's that's his like. He should be winning the French Open. Fourth round Wimbledon. That's that's a good result at the Slams. That's pretty good for a clay quarter. Uh, didn't play the Australian Open last year, so that's a uh, that's uh, unknown. And then second round U.S. Open, which, given his poor hard court form, that's probably about as good as you get. I mean, his draw looks pretty good to me, though. I think he's a. I, I don't think he's a great player outside of clay. But I do think he can edge his way through tricky matches. I mean, he he's pretty lucky in that his his bracket of four players includes two Argentinians and a Spaniard. Like he, in terms of like that is that they might just play those first and second round matches on clay, like just because all four of them will just go. Can we not? Like, can we just put some sand down, like or something? Like, because this is just this is far too hard. It's just I don't know. The draw is very weird this year. In the women's draws, maybe more, there's loads of like the same player playing each other. 
like um there's loads of uh same country matchups loads of very like similar stylistic matchups um and it's the same in the men's draw like loads of lefties playing each other uh loads of clay quarters playing each other lots of guys kind of who you think are sleepers up against each other. It's a nightmare from a fantasy perspective, as you've already pointed out, George, but I do find it interesting. Um, we haven't really spoken about probably, well, I guess the big name in the top half of the draw now, it's Rafael Nadal. How much do we really think he has a chance here? Calvin, Calvin, you were very disparaging from what you saw of him in Dubai. Um, he's He's won a few more matches now. He's had a few more matches under his belt and, he looks, he's obviously won a title and on Rod Labour Arena as well, which I don't think is fair, but that's neither here nor there. Um, are you a bit more convinced now that he's he's won three matches? I think the problem that Nadal has away from a clay court is his record against players in the top 10. I don't know the exact stats, but I think him and Berrettini both have got pretty bad records. I think Berrettini might have improved this a bit in the second half of last year, but Nadal didn't really play in the second half of last year. But what I will say is, like I said earlier on in the pod, that it, it wouldn't surprise me if a few top seeds start falling by the wayside. And what I'm certain about is if we get to, well, in, in, in a slam at all, Nadal won't lose to players outside of the top 12 or 15. And if, the, if, he, if he only has to beat players outside of that to win a slam, I'd back him all day long against anybody. Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to agree but I think he needs he needs Zverev to go. I think that's the player he has to get rid of in his half of the draw. I think the match with Karatsev will be a good one if that does happen, last 16. Um, of course, Hercats is going to be a tough match for Karatsev before that. But the way Karatsev played uh, this weekend and played last year in Australia, he, he'll be tough to beat there. But Zverev, I, I think we'll have too much for him on a hard court. I really do. I, I don't even see that being particularly close now. I think Zverev wins that in three or four. If Zverev loses to someone like Shapovalov, round three or round four, whenever they meet, that I'd, I'd fancy Nadal against Shapovalov. Let's put it that way. I'd, I'd think Zverev would start a favourite, but I'm I'm not as convinced as you are that Zverev's winning that purely because it's a major, and when the pressure's on, we know what can happen to Zverev's second serve when the pressure's on, especially against um, especially against good players like Nadal. And I can see Nadal coming out early and rinsing a few second serve winners. Um, and as I've said before, though, the problem that Zverev, this problem that Nadal has against Zverev is Nadal historically, and, and I say this, it's all relative because he hasn't struggled struggled in inverted commas against anyone really. He struggles against tall players with good backhands, Djokovic, Murray, um, players like that. And Zverev is a tall guy with a good backhand. So his natural shot that he likes, the loopy, heavy topspin forehand high up to the backhand doesn't have as much effect against those type of players as it does against small guys. I think we once had a look into it. People below, like right-handers below 5 foot 11, Nadal's record against them is like almost 100%. But I, I still think it would come into it. Zverev still doesn't win big matches at major tournaments against good players. It's still one thing. He, 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 I don't know if he's done any, if he's beaten any good players. Um, I think, you know, last year, if you look at his slam record, I mean, he's, he's lost to Sissipas on clay in the semis, which is a kind of forgivable result. That was pretty close. He's lost twice to Djokovic at the hardcore slams. And the hardcore slams are the ones really that Nadal's got the problem on here. Like, I think if we're talking at Wimbledon or the French Open, I'd still back Rafa over 
Zverev comfortably. But on a hard court now, he's beaten him pretty easily the last couple of times. And he's only really losing to Djokovic, really, in his last couple of hard court slams. Yeah, but George, you, you, you haven't argued against it there because he's still, you've got, yeah, apart from the majors, I'm saying at the majors, he doesn't. James had this, James, what was that stat you had the other week about players in the top 10 who's Zverev's beat at majors? What is it? Is it like two in his career or something? It's like two, and aren't they both Stefan Pass or something? Um, I'll get it up. George, you were going to say. Well, I, I, I agree, but also. My point is, last year, where I think Zverev really made the step up at the majors, as in he looked a different player to the years before, on the hard courts, he was only beaten by Novak Djokovic. And at the US Open, it was a really, really close, tough match for him. So all I'm saying is I think the levels Zverev has reached, and to be fair to him, demonstrated pretty consistently last year, beating Novak at the Olympics as well. If he plays anywhere near to that level against Nadal, he wins that match in three sets, I promise you, because Nadal's level is nowhere near what Djokovic's level is on a hard court for me. Uh, just to clarify that stat, and I, I did think it was zero. It is zero. Uh, Alexander Zverev against top 10 players at Grand Slams. Zero wins, 11 defeats. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what, what you were saying there, George, is, is what I'm trying to point out, that like when you said there he's he's lost to Djokovic, but they've been close and he's beaten Djokovic, but he's beaten Djokovic everywhere except for the majors. I don't think it's coincidence that he doesn't beat them at the majors. I, I do still think he has a bit of a problem that he shits himself when it when the pressure's on. A well, I, I hope we get this match because I, I think Zverev pumps that Rafa right now. I, I really do. I think he pumps him in three sets on a hard court now, and I'd, that's that's a bold prediction for me. Hey, we're word. getting all we're getting all the technical terms this evening. It's shit oneself to pump someone. These are all kind of if you listen to the Love Tennis podcast regularly, or maybe you're you're here for the first time. These are the kind of technical jargon we come out with, and, and we'll try and break them down every now and again. Um, I think we should move on to the women's draw because uh, we've talked about the men quite enough, and quite frankly, women's tennis has had a tough time breaking through this week because, um, well, I think we all know why. It's because of Maxime Cressy. Um, it's the main problem. Uh, it's hard to know where to start because, as with always, um, the women's game is so open. It's so exciting for that reason. I guess uh, I should maybe refer back to our, our predictions and see if they still, if we're still confident in those because this is tennis and, yeah, exactly. George, you and I have both picked Muguruza. Are you still happy with that? I've gone for her again in fantasy, so... If that makes me happy, then I, I guess that makes me happy. It, she seems as least bad an option as anyone else. I think Barty really is the player to beat for me. But the fact she's playing Osaka round four really puts me off because Osaka, as we've said time and time again, if she gets going, and it, I, I'm not sure whether the stage is round four or the quarterfinals, but if she wins up to that stage, I think she wins the title. Barty might cut her off there. Um but Muguruza is capable of taking them both out. She's in the better half of the draw. Um, that said, she is very much capable of just going out to someone very random as well. So I wouldn't throw her as far as I can trust her. If we were talking from a fantasy perspective about who's got the best draw, it's Sabalenka. But I'm not touching her with a barge pole after we discuss her. <laughs> I, think, I think you'll find, George, that who's got the best draw? It's Storm Sanders because she's playing Sabalenka. <laughs> I mean, 
the woman cannot hit a first serve or, or a second serve for that matter. I mean, you know, that, that collapse the other day against Rebecca Pettersson, that, that had been coming. You know, it's been a month since Sabalenka's basically landed a second serve. Uh, so that bottom half of the draw, I think you pick any seed in the bottom quarter of the draw, I think you're interested in. And for me, and, and this is probably who I'm going to pick in fantasy, although she's the number 16 seed, which is awkward because it means she's in the upper bracket, not the lower bracket, is Angelique Kerber. Because I just think there is almost Can no one. What's that? Kanepi round one. That, that's, that's a horrible draw. I mean, Kanepi is the Jan Leonard strip of the women's game. That, that is not but, someone you want to be in the first round. But because of the bracket she's in, she only gets a point per match win. So you... You're kind of wanting someone who's potentially going to go and win seven matches. Like you don't really want your your second bracket to be someone who's almost certainly going to win three matches, but no more than that. Like I think you want to be gambling on someone who potentially win the title, and I think Angelique Kerber could potentially win the title. I mean, Osaka's in that bracket, so I'm I am gambling on Osaka being capable of winning the title. Mm. Um, and a lot of well. people, a lot of people will. To be fair. Yontek's I mean, in there as well, isn't she, I think? And Bedosa. I mean, yes, yeah, yeah, Shvontek and Bedosa are seven and eight. I mean, Paola Bedosa, by the way, um, played a brilliant final against Barbara Krejcikova uh, in Sydney to win the title. She can't stop winning matches, especially against good players. Uh, she beat Daria Kasatkina, who's been one of the form players this year so far. She beat Belinda Bencic as well. Uh, she did a, In Adelaide, she lost to Victoria Azarenka. You know, that was her first match of the year. And I think you could probably say, okay, fine. Uh, and she obviously gave a decent account of herself at ATP finals where she battered Savalenka and beat Sakari. I mean, Paola Bedosa, so Calvin, we've spoken about her before on this podcast. Is she someone who, who can, with the right week, and I know we think anyone in the WTA can win a slam, but do you genuinely think she could? Yeah, definitely. I think she's certainly in the mix. As I've said before, it's um, the women's is it's a bit different with the men's as to what you've got to do in, to win in a major. Because especially when you've got to beat Djokovic on a Dal on clay, you've got to beat them over five sets and not over three. Whereas in the women's, it's still over three. So, but also wouldn't have to do anything else other than I know there's some sort of people think that the, the extra days rest puts an extra pressure on it. George is giggling away there. I think that's one of his ones, but um, <laughs> I, I, I really don't think it is. Um, I don't see it like most players. I think almost every player I know likes the extra day off. Um, so Apart from, from Gail Monfils, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, Just sits but, there twitching. Uh, yeah. Um, but I, 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 certainly, I think Bedell's in the mix. She's in good form. Certainly in good form. Definitely one of the... I'd put her in the top four or five favourites. Mm. Uh, George... Go on. Who are they? Um, yeah, Barty, Osaka, Bedosa, Muguruza and Shvontek. No, There's, Coco I, t- I, tell, I tell you what, Calvin, what you've done there is a classic George is when you ask him for the favourite and he names five. He asked me who my five was. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I can't, I can't <laughs> fault you on that. Could have given me 15. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we should talk about the woman who everyone in Britain wants to talk about, Emma Raducanu. Uh, she obviously has only had one match, uh, which we've spoken about before on the podcast, kind of at length. I know Calvin has had lots of to and fro. James McDougall, I know you're listening. Thanks very much for getting in touch on Twitter. And I know Calvin was very pleased that uh, he actually had a conversation with somebody he disagreed with that didn't end with a block. Um, Emma Raducanu has drawn Sloane Stevens in the first round. Now, uh, so Stevens hasn't played this year. She got married uh, over the off season to 
if there are any Sunderland fans listening, uh, Josie Altidore, who's of course also a, a football manager legend, probably more legendary for anything he's done in the virtual world than in the uh, real world. Um, so Sloane Stevens, I think, took, a, as far as I can tell, a relatively extended off-season, which, you know, why not? I mean, might as well take some time off. Um, and then headed down to Australia, where she's not played any matches. George, I think from the outside, she's a former US Open champion, albeit four and a half years ago. From the outside, this looks like a really bad draw from Raducanu. Do you think it is? Yeah, I do. I think it's a really bad draw. Um, I think what you've said there about her in the off-season is probably the best hope Raducanu has because last year, Stevens had a lot of really, really tough round ones. You know, talking Kvitova, Carla Suarez, Navarro. Um, it was one of the US Open that was definitely the toughest that's now popped out of my head, but maybe we can Pliskova. dig that out. Kvitova. So, but bizarre stat for Sloane Stevens last year. She beat three seeded players at Grand Slams and they were all Czech. She beat Pliskova, Makova and Kvitova. In Grand Slams. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, it's a shocker of a draw because she, I don't think Sloane Stevens is going to win this title, but she is a very, very good player. She's got very good hands. She moves really well. She'll, she's got the power that can overwhelm Raducanu and she'll move well enough to pick up the shots that Raducanu against kind of a lesser player might be able to put away. Um, so I, I think it's a really, really difficult draw. As you, as you did say, though, the question over Sloane is what conditions she in, both mentally and physically? Is she going to be match-hardened? But then neither's Emma. And I think this tournament, regardless of what we think about Raducanu and where she is at the minute, the fact she's coming in on one match and the one match she played was an absolute stinker. Um, I, I don't really like her chances at all. Mm. Um, she spoke again this week in her Australian Open preview press conference about... Um... Having had COVID, uh, she had 20 days out of tennis. I spoke to a few people close to her who were saying that they really didn't do any what they called genuine training in that 20-day period because they were concerned and they didn't think that she could handle it. They then very gradually kind of eased her back into training. And she said that she'd only had seven hours on court uh, before that match in Sydney. Um, I mean, if we take that at face value, because I think we have to, Calvin, that that is... I mean, that's crazy early in a sort of pre-season schedule to be playing a match against someone who reached a final loop before, isn't it? It puts that result in context. Yeah, um, yeah, no, it's fair, yeah. I, I I don't think it's a terrible draw for her, being that I don't know how much... Not only being in America... Sorry, not only that she hasn't been in Australia, Stevens. I'm not sure... If you're getting married, I'm not sure how much you're practising. Um, it's not... There's definitely not going through a normal pre-season there. And I think that's where... Um, and I guess although Emma's not had a great deal either. I think it, the start of the match will be interesting because um, what sort of doesn't get said about Raducanu enough is that when you compare sort of Wimbledon US Open to uh, up until the end of the US Open and then since then, is that she's a very good front runner. I think players feel a bit of pressure when she gets in the lead that they, they've struggled. What's happened since the US Open is she's never managed to get in the lead too much. Not like she's blown any leads. So I think the start of the match is hugely important. That seems to what be determines the Raducanu matches in the last, well, since Wimbledon really, doesn't it? Who mm. who wins the first set? Mm. Uh, yeah, and I suppose when you've got someone who hits the ball like that, it, it can be hard to, to, play, to try and get back ahead because you've basically just got to hang tough and hope the level drops. You know, actually yeah. a bit like, like Aslan Karatsev. 
Um, and we'll we'll maybe have a, a quick chat about his win over Andy Murray shortly. Um, he's someone who you just feel like you have to just get the ball back for a while and, and hope. And I suppose in a five-set match, you can do that. But in a three-set match, you've obviously just got less time. If someone's level's really high for an hour and you can't do anything about it, there's, there's not, you know, there is, that's it, match over. The, the big concern for me is the Raducanu serve. Sloane Stevens will slaughter that serve if, if she serves at the level she did against Rubikina. She needs to improve that drastically, the second serve. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily advocate a two first serves sort of policy, but the way she was serving the other day, she's either missing wildly or just rolling it in. It'd almost be better just to absolutely go for the second one as it was the other day. But hopefully she's had a week working on that because she obviously served very well at the US Open and hopefully that's a minor blip. I am um, also the extra sort of tangent on this is whether Sloane Stevens is going to still be in her silent protest that she's been putting on for um, <laughs> for Novak Djokovic, where the, the most effective protests apparently are the ones when nobody knows that you're carrying them out. So yeah, I'm not really clear what Sloane Stevens' activism on Djokovic has been. The, the, it's been interesting, the player reaction. I suppose we didn't really speak about it. I don't want to go back over old ground, but the, the player reaction has either been those who've come out and said, I think this is rubbish and I'm pro Novak and have often used some pretty dodgy logic to, to back that up. And then you've got these sort of after-timers, of which there have been a lot, who are now saying, oh, we should have said something, which I find a fascinating point of view to hold. Like, like They're sitting there going, oh, well, now, actually, yeah, I think we should have stood up. Uh, was it Elise Cornet, who, in fairness, you know, she was the first player to say anything about Peng Shui, so I have a certain amount of respect for her. But she came out after the decision and said, you know, Novak has stood up for, for us so many times. None of us stood up for him. Uh, and I was like, well, I mean, you could have done. It might, might not have made much difference. In fact, it almost certainly wouldn't have done. Yeah, this is the thing, isn't it? Like, what I don't get what difference it would have made. It was a legal decision. And as with anything legal, the, it gets made on a factual basis. I don't. I don't get what what. But that doesn't so that doesn't stop people like showing their support or dropping him no, a text or coming. There's out. also a chance that there's also a chance that most of them didn't agree with him because they'd had to get vaccinated, and many of them who didn't wish to. But I mean, the strangest one by a mile was Riley Apelka, who seemed to think that Djokovic should have been allowed to play the tournament because he signed some autographs in 2008. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I would. Bit, I, would I mean, yeah. I think quite a few people gave their opinion on it, didn't they? I mean, it wasn't one of those things where I felt everyone was silent. It's just, as Calvin mentioned there, I think most people, the kind of rational view, as I call it, was, well, if he got vaccinated in the first place, it's not an issue. You know, that's what yeah. Sissipa said, that's what Rublev said, that's what Nadal said, Murray to a degree, although he's a bit, you know, he, I'd say Murray was <clears throat> fairly supportive of Novak, you know, from a human Yeah, I mean, Murray likes him, doesn't yeah. he? And, you know, they've known each other an awful long time. Uh, I asked Murray about Novak in one of his post-match press conferences and, you know, it was maybe the fourth or fifth question in the press conference, so I didn't feel too bad doing it, but, you know, it was just hours after his first appeal and I said, well, look, I wouldn't be doing my job for didn't ask. So he said his piece and then the guy from the Times of India said, you know, when Murray admitted... God bless Andy. Like he's great in a press conference because he will rarely just say, "No, I'm not talking about that." Like if uh, if he thinks it's an important issue, um, and he he made it clear that he'd said his piece. And the guy in the Times of India said, "Oh, just sticking on that topic, you know, do you think all players should be vaccinated?" And Andy just headbutted the microphone. Um, and then and then this is like classic Murray. 
he like he head by the microphone. He obviously really didn't want to answer it, and then gave like a five minute answer and talked about how his the nurse who'd given him his booster had spoken about her work in hospital and how the only people who were really getting ill from COVID were unvaccinated people. And and that was probably like, okay, anecdotal evidence, not always great, but it also lines up with the large amount of scientific evidence. Um, so I, I just thought it's just classic Andy in a press conference, really. But players have been asked about it. Hopefully they won't be asked about it too much more because we'll actually have some tennis to talk about. Um, and before we get stuck into anything else, that's what I want to talk about. And it's also Murray. He was beaten by Aslan Karatsev in the final of the Sydney Tennis Classic. Um, it, it was on the BBC, which is obviously great to pick that up because the coverage of that tournament has been extremely poor because of the ATP rights situation in the UK. Um, but without getting into the kind of nitty-gritty and just talking about the Max in general sort of generalities, I want to talk about the Murray serve. In the first set, his first serve, I think, was at 44%. He hit double two double faults in the first game. Karatsev was obviously attacking the second serve and it looked like it got to him. Calvin, I can't remember Murray going through a period of his career other than very early on when his second serve wasn't great, but it was very surprising to see him hitting double faults at pressure moments. Double faults was a strange one. He's always had a... His serve's always been a bit odd because he's always had a huge first serve. Um, massive, could hit it big. It's maybe not been the most accurate, but it's not been the least accurate either. But he's, he's always had a huge amount of power and heaviness on it. And his second serve, comparative to that, and comparative to his size, he's a big, strong guy, hasn't ever been that good. But I think I've always had a, th- a thinking that at, he's in his prime, his second serve not being great often worked in his favour because it meant that the opposition, in order to take advantage of it, had to attack it. And Murray in his prime was always on the in his best when he was on defence and causing attacking players trouble. So it kind of it was always a bit of a catch twenty two for the for the opponent because you feel that he's pretty slow on Murray's second serve and it doesn't have a huge amount of kick like some players do. It's always had a little bit of slice and a little bit of kick but it's been a bit slow. So what players found themselves doing is they had to attack it. And if you don't hit a clean winner pass, Murray, and you can get a racket on it when you're attacking, that's when he starts putting you in awkward positions, almost neutralising from defence and causing frustration. So it being not very good was often one of his strengths, I think. But now, as we've discussed before, he can't defend as well as he, he'd like to because he is 34 and he has a metal hip. So I think it's going to be more of an issue going forward on that. It's this kind of endless push-me-pull-you, isn't it, of, you know, because he can't move as well, therefore he has to hit the second serve a bit bigger because he can't afford to be attacked on it, so he hits more double faults at pressure moments. It, 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 every time you try and, like, push the, you know, stop up the gap somewhere where the water's coming out, it comes out somewhere else, and it just feels endless. The one thing that I saw, which is when he was right down, you know, he was... When he's five two or three one down in the second set, and he had five break points because he was just swinging for the fences. You know, he was playing super aggressive, and I think I said in the WhatsApp, I said, "Well, Murray's finally playing how he needs to play." Um, Georgia, it, it. I don't really know. Like, it's great that he got to a final. That's hugely positive, and I suppose that was his fifth match in five days. You know, one of which was two and a half hours, another one of which was three and a quarter. So. That's not going to happen in a Grand Slam. So maybe maybe we should take huge amounts of positives away from this. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, it wasn't 
a great match from Murray's perspective. Like if you think about his serve rate wasn't good enough. Um, but also the guy at the other end played a really good match. So, you know, that there's always two sides to every coin. If Murray went into a five set match with Karatsev, you know, he'd probably hope that Karatsev could only last a set and a half at the level he was playing. And that's sort of what happened there. But over five sets, you know, that, that game you mentioned at 3-1, Murray played really well there. And he's actually played pretty well in the back end of that second set. And it was pretty close. Um, Murray would need to up his first serve percentage. But if he was going back into that match with Karatsev, he'd think, well, he's probably not going to serve as well as he did for large periods of that. I'm going to serve a lot better than I did. I've only lost by one break in each set. I, I don't see it as a complete disaster, that result. Not to mention the fact that he probably didn't want to get into a massive long three-set hundinger two days before the Australian Open. That may not have been that wise either. So, yeah, I think it was a good, a great tournament for Murray. Um, it helps he's beaten the guy he's got to play in round one in Australia for a second time. That gives him a That's lot of momentum running, yeah. going into that match. As I've said, I... I think he'll fancy his chances if he gets to play Sinner round three. I think that's a match he'll believe he can win. And we've spoken about how Sinner's not taken his game to the next level. Murray is definitely one of those players who can outthink Sinner, make that life really difficult for him. And then you're looking at kind of Casper Ruud round four. And, that, you know, Ruud actually beat him pretty comprehensively at the back end of last season. But that's about as good a draw as you can hope for for Murray in the fourth round of a slam at the minute is Casper Ruud. So I think he's got to be hugely positive that he's had this run to a final, got this draw at a slam that isn't easy, but is definitely a lot easier than some of the ones he's had over the last year. And Novak Djokovic is not there. And you're not in the same side of the draw as Zverev and Nadal. I don't think he can ask for more in this. So he's someone I've picked in fantasy, maybe foolishly. Well, time will tell, but I, I think this is about as good a chance as Murray can have of going second week of the slam and possibly I wouldn't be surprised if he got to the semis genuinely with Sissipas's elbow being bad. I don't think he will get there, but it could open up for him. Heck of a hedge that George wouldn't be surprised if, but think he might. Yeah. Well done. Very good. Um, We're swiftly running out of time. So uh, I should mention that Madison keys uh, won a title this week. She's got a, uh, I would say a very good draw because she's got Sophia Ken in the first round which, frankly, the way poor Sophia Kennan's played lately, uh, I think is an absolute beaut of a draw. And then she's got one of the Belgians uh, in the second round, potentially. Um, a great story for Tanasi Kokonakis, who beat Arthur Rindeknech, the French player, who also would have been a good story in fairness, but he he won a home title uh, there. Uh, I mean, he, he, he could do some damage. Uh, it, kind of the Nick Kyrgios factor of playing in front of a home crowd. I think he's been bumped up to a bigger court by virtue of uh, of Novak pulling out as well. So uh, he's up against Yannick Hafman, the German, and then could play Nadal in the second round, which I think will probably be on Labour and will be an entertaining clash, to say the least. Um, I don't think... Have I not mentioned any title winners? I think that's everyone. Um, we should do a little bit of lightning round. I'm going to run around the Brits, and you're going to tell me how they're going to fare in the first round. So we'll start with a man we've not mentioned yet, um, Cameron Norrie I need a winner against Sebastian Corder and how many sets it will last George you can go first losers in four I think Norrie Calvin I, I think it's a bad draw yeah I'd agree with that um, Corder in four I think not a great start uh, Dan Evans the four man he's got David Goffin in the first round George 
It's tough. I think Evans in five, actually. I think that'll be a tight one, but he'll get over the line. Goffin might retire as well, hopefully. Great. So you've gone for both extremes. Very good. Calvin? Um, Evans in four. I'm going to take Evans in straight sets. I don't think David Goffin's got very much in the tank, to be perfectly honest. He's on a long injury comeback. And Evo's playing the best tennis I can remember him for a while. Uh, George, I know what you're going to say, but Murray against Nikolos Basilashvili, the number 21 seed. I think Murray should win it in three, but he seems to make a real meal out of these matches. So he'll probably do it in like a tight four, but he'll have like... Your lightning rounds are not good, honestly. Sorry, Murray in four. Calvin? Um, Murray in five. Yeah, I'm going to join you in Murray in five. There's no way he doesn't make that an extremely drawn out and painful experience for all of us. Probably serve for both sets he loses as well. (laughs) Yeah, I could get behind that. Um, into the women's draw, Emma Raducanu against Sloane Stevens. George? Sloane in two, I think, to be honest. Calvin? I'm not sure on that one, you know. I reckon Raducanu might win that. In? In two. When she wins first, she wins the second. Uh, Raducanu in three, I think. It's not going to be a pretty match either. Heather Watson against Mayar Sharif. George, pin sticker. Watson in three, 14-12 in the third set tiebreak. <laughs> Calvin? I, I don't know who Mayar Sharif is, so um, Mayar Sharif in straight. <laughs> uh, she's Egyptian. She's the world number 63. So I, it's probably not a terrible shout. Uh, Harriet Dart up against Iga Shontek. George? It's Fiontek one and love, I think. <laughs> yeah, Fiontek in straights. Yeah, I'm going to give Harriet Dart five games, I think, uh, and join you in that. Have I missed any Brits? There's only three women, aren't there? Oh, my goodness, you know who I have missed? Liam Brody. Oh, crikey, yeah. Uh, Liam Brody, congratulations for qualifying. Um, but you've undone all your good work by wearing one of the worst shirts I've seen in tennis history which I assume you lost a bet to wear. Um, <laughs> Nick Kyrgios in the first round. Calvin? Um, I'm going to go left field. I'll pick Broads uh, to win that one in um, four. Um, you know my thoughts on Kyrgios. I don't think he's very good. George? Uh, I think Kyrgios will have to do much for him in three, but he's playing really well, Liam, so I hope hope I'm wrong. Yeah, I, I watched his um, his match against Safiolin where he was 2-5 down in the second, looked dead and buried in qualifying and, yeah, collapsed on the court. I, so he he won and I went to tweet about it and I looked back at the screen and he was lying on his back and um, Dave, his coach, was like sort of over his chest with his hand on his chest and I thought, oh my God, his bro's just collapsed on court. Um, but no, he was just overcome with emotion and heat. I think. Um, but yeah, best of luck to, to Liam Brody. I mean, Calvin, since we've got a couple of minutes on the end here, you obviously know Brody really well. What, what are you looking at me for, George? What was your pick? Oh, it was Kyrgios in four. I think Brody's on the cassette. Emotionally the occasion, isn't it? But I can't see him winning. Calvin, you obviously know um, Brody really well. Like, how massive is this an achievement just, just to get into the main draw without wanting to make him sound like a you know competition winner? Um, no, it's good, but it's something that he's, you know, it's the second time he's qualified now and, you know, it's not out of the ordinary. I think when he qualified for the French, it was a huge achievement, but I think this is the power level what he sets for himself now. And I think the next stage would be 
getting top 100 and winning matches in main draw, which he's definitely capable of. He mm. makes a lot of balls. That he, it, it, he's a sort of a great example of somebody who just competes well. When, when you go on courts with Broads, he's not going to, you're not going to get free points. You're not going to get free sets or free games. He's going to make you play a lot of balls. He's going to get pumped up. And there's a lot to be said for that. I wish we had a few people like that in my football team, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll let the listeners guess if they don't already know. Um, yeah, I, and, and do you know if that shirt was a bet? Because it really is bad. <laughs> no, it's funny because I was talking with Luke about it. Luke's one of Liam's best mates and... Um, what happens with like he's with a company called Bid and Biden, I think it's called or something, the the clothing company that he's with, and he signed with them sort of maybe halfway through last year. Um, and what what tends to happen with the ranges that those companies have, and I, I have a deal with Illess, and Luke has a deal with Illess, is that you get they often come now with these different colours, these garish colours, and you get a pair of shorts, uh, uh, you get a, a pair of shorts that are in the garish colours, and then a plain shirt. And then there'll also be a plain pair of shorts and a garish coloured shirt. And you normally go for one or the other. And I think what Liam's done there is he's put the shorts on with the shirt. But there would have been like a, a pair of plain black shorts or something. But he's gone for both. And and so basically last season when when Luke played a tournament, unless had something where it was it was basically all clouds. The shirt was just covered in clouds and the shorts were covered in clouds. And I said to him and his partner, because they both had the same clothing contract that if you make the final, you've got to go full cloud. And they did go full cloud and it looked quite ridiculous. But, um, and I think that's what Broads has done. So maybe that was similar sort of agreement with Dave that Dave's gone. If you make the final round of qualities, you've got to wear the full uh, weird sort of gates of hell. Wasn't it really? That yeah. it was, it was very sort of Hacienda. I don't know. It was yeah. very strange. Um, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, if you haven't already entered fantasy tennis, uh, then please do so. Uh, there is a link on our Twitter at Love Tennis Pod. If you head to George's Twitter, you'll see a video and all his tips so you know the players not to pick. Uh, Norbert Gombos, George, I see you've gone with, which is bold, given that he only just scraped through qualifying. Um, in fact, isn't he a lucky loser? He played... No, he, he, he did okay in qualifying. He, uh, he plays another qualifier, though, who's, uh, I don't think, uh, got much about them. So oh, the classic. Oh, he beat he beat Matthew Ebden six seven seven six seven six yeah. in qualifying. Ebden's a tough qualifying draw. Yeah, but he he. I mean, he didn't win a single match in straight sets. Look, you've picked him. Good he luck to draw. you. He had a hard draw in qualifying. I think he did very well. Gone. All right, I'll take your word for it. In the title, he's a new character. <laughs> Uh, thanks very much for listening as always give us a follow leave us a like a review whatever you can to help us reach more people and we'll catch you next week Sports Social Podcast Network With lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere Dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.